Wow. All glory and honor and praise is yours. Father, I just pray now that you, um, as you have been in our worship, that you would be in our word as well. That the words that I, have, that I will speak, that you have given me, that they will be true words, words that will penetrate directly to the hearts and minds of those who will hear. Give all ears to hear, Father, and eyes to see. We give you thanks and praise, and we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Wasn't that awesome? Yeah. Good job, worship team. That was that was great. So much <laughs> We've had a joke here in the church now for about a year because last year we had sort of a full breakfast, and uh, unfortunately, our worship leader overate a little bit, <laughs> and and was uh, was rather uncomfortable all during worship. So. She promised to uh, abstain this year, so good, good job. You can go over there and get something if you want. <laughs> yeah, no more caffeine, though, for you. <laughs> All right. Well, when my kids were young, now they're both back there going, oh, no, what is he going to say? It's nothing bad, I promise. When my kids were young, we had, uh, they loved a series of uh, books titled Where's Waldo? Now, I don't know, maybe some of you are familiar with, with Waldo. It was written by a gentleman named Martin Hannaford, uh, who's English. Started in about 1987. I don't know, are they still around? Parents with kids, are they still out there? All right. So here was, they, they weren't necessarily books that you read. They were pictures, right? And your uh, what you had to do was to look at the picture and you would try to find Waldo. And, you know, he's in there somewhere. And so you're, uh, you know, you're searching around and there's all these colors and, and so forth. And so that was the whole sense was that, you know, you're, you're looking for Waldo. Now, in a sense, Waldo's missing, but he's really not. He's in the picture somewhere, but you really have to look hard to find him. And I can speak from experience, having read these books with my children, that uh, sometimes in some of the images, Waldo is not at all easy to find. Now, um, before we move on, for those of you who have OCD and are not going to be able to really focus until you know where <laughs> Waldo is, there he is. He's right up there in the corner. All right, everybody good now? You can relax. We can move on. Wonderful. Now, I bring this up because um, in the Easter story, there's a little bit of a Where's Waldo thing going on. If you read through all four accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection in the four Gospels, of course, Jesus is front and center in all of them. 
God the Father is also there, although really in the story to a much lesser degree. He's mentioned in Jesus' prayer when Jesus is praying in the garden, and then um, when Jesus cries out from the cross right before he, he dies. But you really don't find any mention of the Holy Spirit, who's the third person of the Godhead, the third person of the Trinity. But even though you don't see him in the text, we know he's there in much the same way that we know that Waldo is in the picture somewhere. We just have to find him. Now, how do we know the Holy Spirit was there? Well, because Paul tells us so in his letter to the Romans. He says this. This is Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 11. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. So you see what happens is often that we sort of read the story of Easter rather simplistically. Easter story is about Jesus. He died on the third day. He rose again. The end. But to read the Easter story as if it ended on midnight, the day of Jesus' resurrection, or as if Jesus and the Father God are the only persons in the story, is to misread it entirely. The raising of Jesus is connected to something the Spirit has been doing since the beginning of creation. And fortunately for us, the Spirit's work didn't culminate with the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the work was just getting started. And the Spirit's work is still going on right now. As the Spirit fills and empowers all of those who call on the name of Jesus today. Now one way of looking at the Holy Spirit is like this. The Holy Spirit is how God gets things done. And what we celebrate on Easter Sunday has everything to do with a much longer story of God getting things done by the Spirit in people's lives. The Spirit is God's active presence among us. And the Spirit, which we see dancing at the very beginning of the creation story, is about the business of bringing lifeless things to life. So at the outset of this series, and we're, we are beginning a series on the Holy Spirit today. It's going to go for two months. It'll take us all the way to Pentecost. Um, and I want to make uh, this particular sentence our, our focal point. The Holy Spirit is the way God makes a difference in the world. But I want to take it a step further. I want us to personalize that sentence. And so I want you to look at it like this. The Holy Spirit is the way God makes a difference in me. You put your name there. All right. Well, how does that happen? What does that look like? I want to look at three ways that the Spirit of God makes a difference in you and in all of us this particular Sunday. First of all, the Holy Spirit makes a difference in us as the Spirit of Easter. Now, Romans 8.11 proves that the Spirit was most definitely present in the story. But was jump-starting everlasting life in Jesus the only thing that the Spirit of God was up to on Easter morning? I want to look now at uh, a, a portion of Luke's gospel. This is from chapter 24, verses 1 through 6. It says, 
But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Oops, now that's, sorry, this thing jumped ahead of me again. There we go. I'll start over. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. The men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. This is just starting to really drive me berserk. There we go. All right. So before Acts 2, which if you're familiar with Scripture, is where we read about the Holy Spirit empowering the disciples in the upper room, or before we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, and James filling the pages of the New Testament with Holy Spirit success stories, before we see any of those wonders, we see a cold, empty tomb carved into a rocky hillside in early Palestine. Lying on a slab, lacking a breath of life or beat of a heart, wrapped in burial linens and anointed with spices, is a Messiah slash prophet. Or something more, as he himself said. His name is Yeshua in Hebrew, or Jesus, and he called himself the Son of God. Jesus was one of a short list of messiahs who existed at that time, who had proclaimed their divine authority to set Israel free from captivity by foreign powers. But Jesus was different from the rest. The foreign power that he came to dethrone was the one seated on people's hearts, rather than someone seated in a government building. And at the center of that difference, that unique quality of Jesus' messiahship was the way that he operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. In his lifetime, Jesus performed signs and wonders like healing lepers, restoring sight to the blind, freeing demoniacs from unseen chains. He spoke to a dead child and she came back to life. He touched a diseased skin and it was immediately cleansed. He spoke up for the prostitutes and the poor, and people listened. He performed signs and wonders as he lived and spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit. He spoke with a mysterious authority and wisdom and even humor that silenced those who were otherwise good at twisting words around. And when they finally got the better of him, <clears throat> He faced his persecution, torture, and crucifixion with a grace that was shocking to behold. If ever the Holy Spirit of God was with someone, it seemed to the observer like the Spirit was indeed with Jesus. And then, just when people finally believed that God was truly alive and interested in their little struggling nation of people, the unthinkable happened. 
And after a week of waving palm branches and, and watching Jesus deal so powerfully and even harshly with the religious rule keepers of his day, his detractors got the upper hand. In one short week of passion and suffering, Jesus was hauled into a thrown-together mock trial and sentenced to a gruesome death. His disciples scattered. His most treasured friends either denied him or made themselves scarce as the fear of guilt by association spread throughout their tightly knit community. On a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull, the 33-year-old king of the Jews was nailed to a Roman crucifix and raised to die in the heat of the day. By nightfall, he had breathed his last, and a spear was thrust into his side to confirm his demise. As the first night passed, Jesus' disciples were terrified, distraught, and feeling the waves of despair so familiar to those who have ever lost hope. Now with him gone, where was the divine power to live, to hope, to joyfully do the will of God as Jesus had taught them? The scripture from Luke says the women visiting the tomb found strange sights awaiting them. The large boulder was rolled away. Men in radiant clothes spoke to them about the living not being found among the dead. The tomb stood empty. The garden smelled fragrant, and a palpable electricity filled the air. Then Jesus appeared. He revealed himself first to a woman, just to make a statement to the powers of that age that didn't trust a woman's testimony. But the table-turning spirit who raised Jesus from the dead was just getting started. In the days and weeks that followed the resurrection, all heaven was breaking loose. The spirit that spoke life and beauty into the chaos at the beginning of creation had now breathed life into Jesus. The spirit then started spilling the good news everywhere through excited, ecstatic disciples who lost any semblance of fear of the authorities. So how does the spirit of Easter make a difference in you? Well, there is faith when the spirit of Easter blows. There is boldness to face our fears head on when the spirit of Easter moves. And there is power from on high to do the work of Jesus when the spirit of Easter flows. Secondly, the Holy Spirit makes a difference in you as the spirit of new creation. Now when Jesus rose from the dead, it was more than just a moment in history. It was the inauguration of the next phase of what you might call the Trinity's new creation project. In John's Gospel, we find these words of Jesus delivered after the resurrection when he suddenly and mysteriously appeared to his disciples when they were meeting together in this locked room because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities and officials. And he came to them and he said, Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard of the story of Ezekiel 
in the Valley of Dry Bones? Ezekiel was a 6th century Hebrew prophet, and he saw this vision, and he probably thought it was just for his time, and, and his time alone. But Ezekiel was caught up in a revelation that was powerfully pointing across the centuries to Easter morning. Ezekiel's vision begins like this. The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor, and they were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? O sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath in you and make you live again. Here we remember that the Holy Spirit is the very breath of God. And in this passage, Ezekiel is seeing beyond his own time and place as he speaks of breathing this breath into lifeless Israel. He's seeing God's vision for his own time, but he's also seeing forward to that moment when Jesus, right after the Spirit raises him from the dead, will breathe that same spirit wind on his disciples. In Ezekiel's Holy Spirit story, the Sovereign Lord does indeed make his breath enter those dry bones, which represent God's people Israel in that vision. And they become a mighty army as they clatter to life, taking on skin and muscle, and they're expressed in the image of the four winds. And so likewise, as Jesus speaks to his disciples, who frankly are probably still in shock over the exhilarating and exhaustingly joyful events of Easter, the words, of jo the words that John chooses are inspired to hearken back to what Ezekiel had said centuries earlier. And with that, he breathed on them said, receive the Holy Spirit. A new army is being raised with that breath, and you and I are part of it. Now, couldn't Jesus have given the Holy Spirit without being crucified or rising again? It seems that the Father knew, surprise there, um, in the mystery of his will being accomplished for all time past and future, that during the Passion Week, Jesus needed to face the powers of that age while remaining sinless. Jesus needed to enter death to take back the keys that had once been held by the evil one. But Jesus had something else to do that he couldn't do himself. He had to be resurrected by the Spirit to make resurrection possible for all of us who would follow. He would be the firstborn of the resurrected. He had to rise to life to set new creation alight in our world. Toward the day when all of creation would be restored to its full and sacred beauty. How does the spirit of new creation make a difference in us? Well, by the power of the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living in us, we are coming to life out of our addictions, our fear, our self-absorption, our bitterness, 
in our depravity. Our dry bones are rattling. And then third, the Holy Spirit makes a difference in you as the spirit of resurrection. At Easter, Jesus was brought back to life again by the power of the Holy Spirit. New creation began to spring up everywhere toward the day when all things would be made new. So how does all of that change how we live today? Well, we've been speaking pretty theologically up till now, talking about the Holy Spirit, that really elusive and mysterious part of the Trinity, as breath, as wind, as the way God gets things done. We've talked about the spirit of Easter showing God's power through signs and wonders, culminating in raising Jesus from the dead and into everlasting life. We've talked about the spirit of new creation, the wind of God, empowering God's people to be in Ezekiel's army of those who, filled with the Spirit, march into this world with love and grace, forgiveness, restoration, and power that only the Spirit brings. And now we bring it all together as we look at the Spirit of resurrection life, the Holy Spirit, and how the Spirit that raised Jesus is raising people like you and me from the dead every day. The last scripture we'll look at today, the last scripture we might look at today, okay, is from the book of Romans, chapter 6, it's verses 4 and 5. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. There's nothing more beautiful than a sunrise after a long night of darkness. Shy beams of light creep over the lip of the horizon. Suddenly, the sky and the fields are set ablaze with the color of light. Few expressions of beauty in this life can stand beside a truly striking sunrise. But to those who have experienced the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit at work in their own lives and the lives of other, others, it's truly something that's more beautiful than a sunrise the rising of a new disciple. <clears throat> Edward had known only devastation and heartache <clears throat> in all his years of relationships, from his family onward into his adult years. He was at the end of himself trying to cover his pain, and substance abuse took its toll on him day in and day out. He had relationships with a few Christians who had invited him to church, but he wouldn't darken the door of a church because of all the judgment and the pain that he had experienced from the kind of Christians he had run into earlier in life. Sound familiar to anyone? Then one day he realized his life was falling apart all around him. 
At the invitation of a Christian friend in his neighborhood, a now desperate Edward decided to come to church for the first time in years. He wasn't prepared for what would be happening that morning. And as he sat in his seat, the Holy Spirit began to move through the corridors of his heart. As he listened to the message, he felt a strange warmth and sense of feeling safe and accepted deep in his spirit. And at the same time, he felt this overwhelming sense of shame for the things that he had done and continued to do. And by the time the service was over and people were invited to receive Christ up front, Edward was eager to give his life to Jesus. Surrounded by compassionate, grace-filled friends with tears streaming down his face, Edward made the decision to follow Jesus wherever he might lead. Sometime later, filled with a sustained awareness of God's love in a new community of cheerleaders around him, Edward decided to be baptized. He learned that according to the Bible, baptism symbolizes dying with Christ, which is going into the water, and then rising up with Christ, coming up out of the water, to a new way of living. In being baptized, he learned that he was putting on Christ and renouncing his old way of doing life. He was having his conscience cleansed and unburdened from the guilt of sin's past. He was dying to himself, and he was turning over his life to Jesus' lordship and leadership so he could walk in new life. And best of all, Edward was excited about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit in a fresh way at his baptism as he publicly declared his faith in Christ. At the front of the church, Edward made his declaration of allegiance to Jesus. He went down into the waters, immersed into the tomb of the waters. Then as Edward was lifted up out of the water, he rose from the water shouting. The new Edward was now in union with Jesus, the risen Christ. The sin and the bitterness that had mastered his heart for so many years, they were dethroned. And he felt the Holy Spirit's power overtake him as he released his life to Jesus. That day, laughter mingled with a tear of joy for Edward and for all of his friends. As a man was finally freed from the chains that had bound him his entire life. The wind of the Spirit speaks order into chaos. The breath of the Spirit brings new creation life with it wherever it goes. The power of the Spirit brings a resurrection where an old dead self had been surrendered to Jesus. There's a powerful verse in 2 Corinthians that captures what the Spirit brings to the human heart. In 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, it says, For the Spirit, for the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. The Holy Spirit is making dead people live, transforming lives around the globe. 
as the Spirit has been doing in every generation since the time of Jesus. And when that spirit of resurrection fills your life, well, we're free to worship. We are free to sing and to respond to God with thanks, with praise, with love. We are free, or should be, from grumbling, complaining, and getting lost in bitterness. We are free to do God's will. We are free from following our own ways, which we always think are much better. We are free to reach others with the compassion of the gospel, just like Paul did. To freely share the news of Jesus' resurrection and the gift of new life in him. Because those who have been forgiven much love God and love others much. The Spirit stirs the love of God the love that God has for the world within us, and we're invited to spread it everywhere. The spirit of resurrection life does so much more, filling us with gifts, with power, with joy, with hope, and every gift is a new path to freedom. So the Holy Spirit was at the center of the story that first Easter morning, furthering a plot that has been in motion since the dawn of creation. And now, because of the resurrection, the Spirit's wind is filling the sails of God's church to impact a world unaware that it's broken and desperately in need. And like the wind, the Holy Spirit is difficult to describe. It can even seem elusive and mysterious. And just as those Easter guards at the tomb and the first disciples were caught off guard by God's surprising work, so too the Spirit can catch us a little bit off guard when God decides to move. We don't know where the Spirit comes from. We don't know where the Spirit is going. And that can make a lot of good church folk nervous. But we've got to remember that Jesus said the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so is everyone born of the Spirit. And the cool thing is, if we're born of the Spirit, then we have to be ready for a life full of surprises. The surprising spirit can come with a suddenness, just like we see in Acts chapter 2, when this rushing wind with a sound like thunder fills the room where the disciples are meeting and seems to appear like fire on top of each one of them. And when the spirit manifests to us the presence of God, gifts often appear, like revelation about a situation we're facing or wisdom for a particularly difficult circumstance, or power to heal others, or words packed with revelatory insight, or the ability to do miracles and have the gift of faith and tongues and discernment and prophecy. The Spirit also brings us more sustained long-haul fruit in our character, making us like Jesus, fruits like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
we can be filled with the Holy Spirit just like we read in scriptures. We can experience God in such a profound way that we are given special gifts for personal encouragement to reach others. The Spirit of God, just like the wind, was on the move that first Easter morning. Are you ready for whatever next surprise the Spirit has in store? As I've mentioned a couple of Sundays previously, <clears throat> the death of Billy Graham, I think, impacted me in a, in a way that I wasn't expecting. And it's sort of like the death of, of this one man who, who made such an impact on the world, who was so passionate about offering people the opportunity to experience God's eternal life. And while... I would never, ever in a million years profess to be anything close to Billy Graham. I do feel his burden to a certain extent that we should not have a service here without offering people the opportunity to accept God's gift of eternal life. And so what we're going to do right now <clears throat> is we're going to pray a prayer. We're going to pray it as a group. So I want all of you to repeat after me. Because if there's somebody here who's praying it for the first time, I don't want them to feel alone. They need to understand that when you pray this prayer, you suddenly have brothers and sisters everywhere. You've got a room full of them right now. But if you pray this prayer for the first time, please tell someone. I would love to be the one you tell. Uh, but tell somebody so that you can then get plugged into a community of faith, whether it's, if it's, it's here, wonderful. If it's not here, if it's somewhere else, that's fine too. Just want you to be part of a, a family of God. All right? So let's everybody close their eyes and just repeat after me. Oh God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. I'm willing to turn from my sins. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sins and that you raised him to eternal life. I receive Jesus as my Savior. I receive him as my Lord. From this moment on, I want to follow him in the fellowship of the church. Guide my life and help me to do your will. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now I will ask this. Yes, clap. Is there anybody here who would be willing to raise their hand and say, that's the first time I've ever prayed that? 
Excellent. Clap. I've had conversations with some friends of mine, and um, there's this weird tradition in the church where we're supposed to close our eyes and we're, we keep our eyes closed, and then we raise our hand. You know, if we've if we've taken that, if we've prayed that prayer, well, we're not supposed to be ashamed of Jesus. <laughs> Why are we hiding? This is a fantastic absolutely fantastic thing that's happened to my friend Jeremy there. And he needs to know that the support of everybody here is with him. So praise God. All right, we're going to have one last hymn where we can sort of uh, get our praise on. So would you stand? I don't know how much this is going to be, but it's going to be fun. It's exciting. Hallelujah. I can't sit after that. All right, guys, let's go.
truth and justice shines like the sun in all of its brilliance the king of glory the king above all kings this is amazing grace this is unfailing Jesus, you're so worthy. You're so worthy of my own. Jesus, you're so worthy. Lord God, you are indeed worthy. So we leave this place today hopefully different than when we came. And Father, it is our prayer that that change wouldn't stop with us. 